Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, you're listening to a special episode of Babbage, a festive roundup of some of the science and technology highlights from this year's shows. I'm Jason Palmer, an editor of Espresso, The Economist's daily briefing app. Coming up, a better way to sail into the stars. Now, as the craft is spinning, the uh, wire, the tether itself, also spins around. So it creates a sort of, it sweeps out a circle and creates a sort of virtual sail. Why birds are weaving cigarette butts into their homes. The birds know. I I mean, it strongly suggests anyway that the birds know that when you've got live ticks, uh, cigarette butts make a difference. And what the future of electric driving might look like. Well, the holy grail that the technologists are working on is managing to charge a vehicle while it's moving. But first, this year saw a lot of extreme weather events. In the latter half of the year, Hurricane Harvey struck, flooding raged across America, and severe heat waves across Europe. I invited our environment correspondent, Jan Petrovsky, onto the show to explain why it was all happening. There has been a lot of work on trying to attribute blame for events such as very heavy rainfall and heat waves. This began in in 2003 with a suggestion by an Oxford professor, Miles Allen, who suggested that if the changing climate doubled the probability of an event occurring, that could in effect be interpreted as man-made climate change being responsible for half of that event as it were. Um, Since then, the so-called event attribution literature has grown as people have began analyzing specific events and global trends and trying to um, apportion blame to natural factors and to human factors. In other words, the climate is changing, which may help explain why Hurricane Harvey is actually the third once in 500 years event to hit Houston in the past 50 years. Uh, There was Hurricane Claudette in 1979, then Hurricane Allison in 2001. Okay, so let me get this right. If we have a once in 500 year hurricane, and it's happened three times in the last 50 years alone, it's suggesting that our models are not quite right. So this seems like a real problem for us because engineers are building roads and bridges and dams, all based on models of what they expect the adverse weather conditions to be, but those models are wrong. Very possibly so. The problem with the models is that precisely that they assume that the climate is unchanging. That is almost certainly not true. The probability of these extreme events has risen with climate change as the event attribution literature and simple counting of natural disasters seems to suggest. As scientists grapple with weather pattern prediction, we also found out this year that tech firms are getting extremely good at facial recognition. Software can now adeptly pick you out in a crowd, but soon it'll be able to do far more, judge your mood, your age, even your ethnicity. Our technology correspondent Hal Hodson discussed the merits and the pitfalls of this fast-advancing technology. 
there's two kinds of face recognition, really. There's recognition that matches a face to an identity, a known identity. That is very much out of the bottle being used by security services all over the planet, soon to be used by Apple and lots of big tech companies. A slightly newer form of that is called face characterization, which is similar, but instead of connecting a face to an identity in a database, it connects a face to an inherent trait or your mood. So it can match with things like your ethnicity, your age, your gender. And while that's maybe not super controversial when you think about it on a one-person basis, you know, I can look at people and take a guess about those things. But when you can do it for an entire city automatically through a CCTV network, for instance, it starts to become a completely different proposition. And the worry is that it gives those in control of the technology a little bit too much power and that we don't quite understand how that power will work. This year, we also reported on several large advances in our persistent quest to find extraterrestrial life. One of these was a nifty and relatively thrifty trick to help spacecraft use the sun's energy for propulsion through space. Our science correspondent, Anano Bhattacharya, explained how it works. Essentially, it is a sail that harnesses the solar wind, and that's a, a stream of charged particles that come from the sun. And uh, you, you see them occasionally on Earth in the form of the northern lights. The sail itself is essentially four wires that are braided together and looped up uh, inside the craft before launch. Once the craft gets out into space, these four wires, which are sort of braided together into a long tether, are spooled out. And they can be all together be as long as sort of 20 kilometers from end to end. Uh, and this they, is just trailing behind the craft? And uh, this is sort of sticking out of the craft. The craft's rotating and the wire sort of spools all the way out. Now, as the craft is spinning, the uh, wire, the tether itself, also spins around. So it creates a sort of, it sweeps out a circle that creates a sort of virtual sail. This sail is kept at a positive potential. And basically, uh, any electrons that are in the wire are spewed out into space by an electron gun. And then as positively charged particles like protons that are in the solar wind approach the sail, they're deflected. And because, as we know, every action has an equal and opposite reaction, uh, the deflection of the particles causes a corresponding force forward on the, on the craft. Back on Earth, we discovered that birds living in cities have also been rather inventive in harnessing their environments. Birds, it seems, are taking advantage of one of our dirtier habits, smoking, to help them build better nests. Matt Kaplan explained why they're weaving cigarette butts into their homes. The birds that these folks worked with were on the campus in Mexico, and the researchers collected the linings from, it was like 30-odd bird nests, and then they replaced the linings with a little bit of felt and uh, some plants from the local area that the birds typically used. And then some of the nests, the poor birds, had ticks added to them, like 70 ticks. In some cases, those 70 ticks were alive. In some cases, they were dead. In some cases, the birds were lucky, and they just were given a new nest with no ticks at all, just as a control. And then the researchers monitored what the nests looked like after the nestlings in these nests had fledged, and the parents had gone away. And they found that the, the number of cigarette butts in nests that had living ticks in them was way higher than in the nests that had either dead ticks or no ticks at all, which tells you 
the birds know. I, I mean, it strongly suggests anyway that the birds know that when you've got live ticks, uh, cigarette butts make a difference. So I suppose that brings the number of potentially good things about smoking to one. In the not-too-distant future, we should have infrastructure for electric vehicles woven into our own surroundings. And one of the most important aspects of making these vehicles run smoothly is, of course, charging. For decades, researchers have been trying to charge cars, trucks, and buses through thin air. And as science writer Ben Sutherland explained, they might have just about cracked it. Well, the holy grail that the technologists are working on is managing to charge a vehicle while it's moving. That would, in theory, allow a vehicle to be driven forever without stopping if a big enough percentage of the track is actually inlaid with coil that can uh, pass a charge through to the vehicle. Now, in practice, this uh, this does work. By having a sequence of coils in the pavement, in the street, with some sort of magnetic system to know exactly where the car is and, and therefore when to switch on which part of the track, uh, you can deliver a charge to a moving car. That is obviously going to cost a fair amount of money to, to put into the roads, but there are a number of companies working on ways to try and get the cost of such a system down. One of them is an Israeli startup based outside of Tel Aviv called Elect Road. With money from Israel's Ministry of Transport in Tel Aviv, they have actually begun converting a short stretch of road in Tel Aviv with this system. And the city will be using it to charge electric buses as they move along their route. Lastly, some staples of science fiction, such as flying cars, don't really scare people. In fact, most welcome their arrival. But artificial intelligence is notable in its ability to strike chords of fear. Will artificially intelligent robots rise up and destroy us, or simply help us out with tasks that mere human minds struggle with? Time for a debate, we thought. Senior editor Oliver Morton and science correspondents Jan Petrovsky and Tim Cross sat down to unpick this thorny issue. And you see, for me, I think this is one of the big differences, is that we tend to assume in the future that we'll have AIs that look like humans and are sort of generally intelligent and do lots of different cognitive things. But what's interesting about the modern stuff, actually, is how non-general it is. And there was a famous chap called Douglas Hofstadter back in the 1970s famously said that there may one day exist computers that are better than people at chess. But they won't just be chess-playing computers. They'll be machines that will play chess for a few hours and then get bored and say, hey, I'm bored of chess. Let's go and play po- and do some poetry instead. Um, and he was flat wrong about that. And w- what I think is interesting is that as we're starting to build you know, actual AI in the real world, it turns out that the most profitable way to do that is to focus on very, very narrow problems, build things that really aren't like humans at all. Yes, I, I, I think that's right. Though I think you're—I don't think you're quite right in thinking that people assume what AIs will be like in the future. I mean, among other things, aside from people who know their Star Trek from their Battlestar Galactica, most people don't think about AI very much at all. And when they do, I don't think they assume them because I think they just know that that's the way we talk about these things because it's the way that AI challenges us as humans that we most care about. And so it makes sense to sort of like personify that challenge in something human-like. But I don't think people really expect AIs to be like mechanical creatures. I think I would be inclined to agree with Tim a little bit. And the reason is that we use the nebulous term intelligence, which we basically use in common language 
almost en- entirely to refer to other humans. Sometimes we, we, we use it to refer to animals, but to sentient beings. And suddenly we're, we're using that same word with its all sort of lexicographic load to refer to something that is not like humans or animals. So I think that there is a little bit of that, just it's embedded in the, in the very formulation that we use to describe it. Well, yeah, and also the projection that we bring, you know, when we talk of animals. I mean, much of the intelligence of animals is something that we project onto them any, rather than anything that we can necessarily say that we can show exists within them. And I, I think, you know, the, the clear thing that's interesting about this is that AIs and computers offer us intelligence without sentience. And if you want to boost your own intelligence, you can listen to these or any other previous shows online. That's it, though, for this episode of Babbage. We'll be back next week with more reporting from the world of science and technology. Thanks for all your support this year. We appreciate it. And we'd appreciate it if you took a second to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It does matter. Till next time, in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.